Hello and welcome to Bitpicking, a software engineering podcast. I'm Laura. I'm Mark. I'm Greg. Hi, Greg. Hi, Mark. Hi, Laura. This week, we talk with Paul Newell, who is a system solutions architect uh, who's worked in defence and telecoms industry. Uh, we ask, how can you apply agile to industries like defence? We once again question the value of estimates during planning. And how much joy is there in a green bar? Let's go. So, Paul, welcome to the Bit Picking Podcast. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Good. It's a bright summer's evening, which is lovely. Your background is very much in industries like defence and therefore uh, uh, industries to which we might not apply agile or not very easily. Certainly not an area that, that um, we tend to talk about uh, when we describe the things that we do. So I think it's very interesting for us to understand your point of view on some of the things that we talk about um, and your experience of um, uh, what software development is like in those, uh, in those environments. What are the pros and cons? Is Agile an answer uh, in those places? So why don't you just start, just tell us a little bit about your, your background and, and where you've been and what you've done. Yeah, sure. So um, I've been in software for a couple of decades now, probably like um, you guys. Um, well, you, Mark, I don't know about the other guys. <laughs> yeah, that's um, about right. They're just newbies. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, mostly in defense. I just fell into a company in my, my hometown and kind of like stayed stayed with that domain ever since. Um, I think specifically where the kind of projects that I've worked on through my career probably differ from the, the sorts of things that you've been talking about is that they're often um, very long, like some of them can be like five years long, um, but certainly in the order of a couple of years. Um, and they're also fixed price. So <clears throat> there's normally like a tender process, a long drawn out process of bidding and so on, where that culminates in a large company signing a contract with another large company around some requirements, which they think are final, but are so high up in the clouds that it's very, very divorced from anything that'll actually end up getting implemented. But of course, the company's now signed on a dotted line to deliver a thing in five years' time, and now, and then suddenly they've got to, they've got to try and meet that deadline. So traditionally, how that would work is they'd start by taking the high-level customer requirements and try and derive um, lower-level requirements, come up with subsystems, um, and then subsystem requirements and lower-level design until you finally get down to the bottom. At which point, of course, um, so this is this is kind of waterfall, right? You do all of the analysis and then all of the design, and then you might start actually engineering something and it can be hardware or software so most of the things i worked on has been a combination of both that's another complicating factor um so that's traditionally where the industry has been and so for a long time i wasn't even uh, on board with the agile thing i was a late late kind of like come out to the whole party of agile and it took me a while to think that it could ever work but having been involved in so many projects, seeing where the problems are when you're not doing Agile, I realized that it has to work. Um, and the main problem being that if you do this waterfall approach, you'll make assumptions right at the start, which will invariably be proven to be wrong quite quickly when you start the engineering. And then everything you've done since that point is proven wrong. Yeah. Um, so we get to a point where, okay, particularly for the software bit, you want to do agile, but your, your kind of management structure above you have still tied into this fixed contract and this concept that they have fixed requirements. And so there's always this battle of how you try and fit an agile type program within that fixed price structure. Um, your, um, does that management team, do they, do they get to choose what the development process is like is it is it the engineering managers that are determining that and then it's the development team which are trying to be agile or is it sort of a separate entity that's 
um, sort of demanding a, a, a particular way to work? Um, in, in my most recent project I'm working on, it's more the latter, because the company that I work for is a very large company that are primarily in the space of what they would call systems of systems integrators, and in fact had not really any idea what software was, let alone what Agile was. Right. So they, sub, they subbed out the whole thing. Subsequently, um, kind of, I, I was brought in to uh, kind of oversee that subcontract and then bring it in-house. Um, and that's what I've been doing over the last few years, which went through the phase of kind of like getting the subcontract to get it into the cloud so that we could have access to the code. Before that, they were just getting deliveries on, you know, the zip file, there's your code. Oh, wow. The company didn't, didn't really know what to do with it. So migrated down to a cloud so that we could both at least work on the code and then gradually um, build up a team in-house. But we've been pushing the process up, really, to up to the management because they don't really have um, they don't really have the skill set to understand how to do software. Mm. Um, I'm just so, wondering if it's typical in those types of environments, because you're absolutely right. From my personal experience, I've not really been in that kind of world so i guess i'm a little bit blinkered to um you know what might happen in this sort of big contract um arena and i'm just wondering if um you know whether there's a, a there's a possibility of a grassroots movement to sort of do agile under the radar or whether you're sort of told okay this is how we're going to work and then that's where the sort of conflict comes in no, I think they kind of realized that they had to take the kind of advice of the software experts on how things have to work. And so they were happy and bought into the agile thing. Plus it's, you know, it's a buzzword, right? Once you, once they kind of start Googling things, they realize, oh yeah, this is how we do software. So they're, they're, they're right. Let's do what they did, what they're saying. Um, but, so they're, they're happy to kind of accept that. But then because there's, you know, there's an, a line item in a, in a contract somewhere, which said, this is kind of in the bid, Oh, here's the software. It's going to cost this much, and here's a, like a dozen software requirements. Um, they assume a you know exactly what you're doing, right, and okay. it's going to cost exactly how much it said in the bid. So you're sat there. There's a month in front of you, and you're looking at them and go, "What would you like us to do? It's your product." Um, but they don't have the kind of capacity to kind of turn their idea into some kind of like sprint worthy set of tasks. Okay. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's conflict, but it's, it's tricky because what they're focused on, and I don't know if this is something that you guys have is, um, they're focused on what's the cost to complete, Like you know what the requirements are. There's 12 lines of, you know, in a, in a document somewhere, you know what you've got to do. Tell me how much you're going to cost. Like, well, we don't actually know what we're going to do because that line there, which says, support this or output that what do you we don't know what that really means we don't know what you want on the screen you know it's so um it's been quite a challenge to to kind of to, to kind of mesh the two together really and it feels yeah. like that's a, for me that's at the heart of agile adoption which yeah. is that acceptance yeah but actually your agile isn't necessarily asking you to do a or to do b what it's really asking you to do first is to accept that we probably yeah. don't really know what we're doing yes <laughs> we and i think as we go along. <laughs> hey this 10 billion dollar contract to yeah, yeah. fight a plane right, we're not right. actually quite sure how to do it so this is really interesting this is why this is really interesting to me because fundamentally it doesn't i don't think it matters what industry you're in it doesn't matter how much you know, how many people you set into writing requirements documents. Fundamentally, people don't really know either, people don't either don't know what they want or people don't know how to build what the other person wants until yes. you get into it. And, and I, yeah. I, I don't know that any amount of preparation really um, changes that. So I'm no. interested in the, in, you know, sort of what, what's your observed success rate for these projects? right in, in, it's you know particularly pre-agile do they typically succeed i mean i guess my my um my biased yeah. impression is that they're probably going to end up over time over budget yeah always i think pretty much i mean that looking at the wider projects they pretty much always do and that's not just the software side the hardware um i remember my first project that i was on 
um, I think it was supposed to be um, like a three-year project and we were two weeks they had two weeks at the end for integration yeah. and that integration took another three years <laughs> and, um, and that, that's that, that's exactly what happened and I think you're you're actually right nobody knows what they want but they don't realize they don't know what they want that's that's the problem yeah. um so I, I, I actually wonder on that point if people do um and i think it's when it gets hard i've had this theory for a while that somewhere in our lives when we grow up i don't know if it's the way we're taught at school but the waterfall method is like the the, the de facto starting point and then agile comes along and it's like it's instantly challenging and therefore when later on in life things get difficult you know and under stress you tend to sort of default to learned behaviors for some reason the waterfall sort of classic project management is the place that we all fall back to yeah and it, you know. at the end of the day it all comes down to communication doesn't it who who your stakeholders are and how you're communicating what you're doing to them and i think waterfall is often like the path of least resistance in communication isn't it and and then when you go agile you've got to continuously communicate what's going on and that is just mm. another thing to do um and we're not always that great at it as humans but mm. yeah i'm quite interested to know interested to know how you communicated what you were doing then to these important stakeholders well yeah i mean particularly what they really always seem to care about is what percentage complete are you which is such an you know an amorphous question because <laughs> like well where, where's your starting point because yeah. i mean the other confusing factor with this is there's some element of legacy involved so it's kind of not all brand new stuff. So saying how complete you are is, is a bit kind of meaningless. So, um, I mean, it's been, there's been various phases to this, um, which I won't bore you with, but it's been working quite well um, for the last few, probably maybe six months, um, simply by kind of conveying the fact that all, we'd, all we need to know is what you want for the next month. I don't care about anything beyond that. Um, and then at the end of the month, because we were doing we were doing month sprints, so I'll come back to that. Um, we delivered what and what they wanted and more, and they were happy. Um, but that was kind of pre-ramp up, and now we're in this phase where we're ramping up, and they're getting all these new middle managers involved. Uh, and okay. all the middle managers want to know is like buckets of money, you know. How much is yeah. how complete you are, and how you know how much more to go is there? And can and they so put now, it in their spreadsheet? <laughs> yeah, put it in their spreadsheet. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what they want to do. And I'm like, I don't know how to don't know how to engage with this really because I don't know how how many times ever times I tell you I don't know what the product is yet because you haven't done you know at the systems level all the analysis to say this is all the things you want. So how can I possibly tell you how long yeah. there is to go? So I think. Um, I think it, it will be quite a challenge. It yeah. is, I, find, I do find it fascinating, the sort of that management approach. You know, just, just sort of tell me a percentage complete. You know, I'm not going to get involved in the, in the detail and, you know, I'm not going to believe in the people that I've trusted to deliver for me, you know, just... Because I have actually been in that place. I don't think that is particularly unique to um, defence contracts. Um, and certainly in the early days of Agile, when it was sort of nascent and not very well understood, I think that was quite a common um, a, a common situation for a team to be in where you're, you're sort of, you're saying, well, I, you know, I'm just being honest, I don't know. And to, until we sort of start, we won't know what the end is and mm. that kind of yeah. stuff. And then somebody detached from it is going, well, you must be able to tell me. And then you sort yeah. of get into those silly conversations, don't you, where they go, well, are you half done or not? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. We're not half done. Okay, well then it's less than fifty percent, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, in in their defence, I can understand the dilemma because they've got a fixed endpoint, and they need to understand how big the team needs to be to hit the endpoint. But I'm saying I don't know how much work there is to do. <laughs> but that's the other variable, right? And you won't know that unless you revert to waterfall and do all of the analysis. But by that point half the project time's gone you haven't started anything and as soon as you do start your analysis is probably invalidated yeah. so it's kind of it's a bit catch-22 yeah, so, like yeah. 
in your in your experience with your kind of clients is there ever like a fixed fixed deadline you have to hit and without really knowing what it is you've got to fit in that time I think quite a lot. I mean, certainly in my experience, um, someone somewhere always wants to know a date. And so you know, when you say fixed, you know, there's a question of how, how fixed is fixed. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and it, it, it's rarely, it, is someone going to die if it's not delivered by that date? Yeah. Okay, then it can move, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So, so it's, it's really kind of so fixed that you can't, you, you can't do it. But um, I mean, I, I think my... I'm increasingly of the opinion that you can't go wrong by saying we need a team of six for <laughs> yeah. months. And you will you probably, mean the two pizza team? Yeah, you'll yeah, yeah. probably, you'll probably <laughs> fulfill most reasonable size, size projects and get some other stuff done maybe at the same time as well. Well, yeah. I mean, I kind of, the point, whenever anybody's asked how many people do you need in the team, I'd say, well, if you go above five or six, we won't be efficient anymore. So if you want efficiency, let's cap it at six and see how we go. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't obviously answer the question necessarily whether you can do the thing in the time. But I take take I totally take a point about the fixed end date. There's um there's often a kind of uh, a feeling that something is completely immovable, and some of that in my case comes from the mentality of delivering hardware, because once you've delivered the hardware. Yeah. that's done right you've yeah. you've manufactured it and if there's anything wrong with it then you can't change it yeah. whereas the point i'm trying to suggest is that end date of delivering that thing if if in the software all the features aren't perfect yet you do have another chance yeah yeah in the maintenance phase and so on to to, to deliver more stuff so if it's not going to fit we'll deliver it you know the good bits the important bits. and that's that's actually i hadn't really thought about that before but but that's an interesting thought which is that Kind of agile arose with the web, yeah. Which was the way then actually you can just release software. You know, pre that, when you're shipping something on a CD, you know you can't you can't release every other day. Yeah. Uh, you know you you have to get to a point where it's ding it's done. And and I hadn't I'd never really associated I think in my head the adoption of agile with the web and therefore the ability to iterate um, was was far higher. Yeah, and I guess that that is another barrier in, in defence is that the systems are always always not on the web; they're all always on their own private network. Right. So it's not as easy as they can just download the next version of software. Yeah. You generally have to go to site and stick something in a hole <laughs> and um, <laughs> and install it. So yeah, I guess so. That is another kind of reticence to to accepting the fact that things can change after, you know, after the official fixed deadline, but it's, it's easily overcomable, if that's a word. I mean, I suppose like, and this is another area where it gets difficult in these conversations, because you just sound like you're being, you know, a bit of an asshole, but I suppose you could always say, and, and I've done this myself, surprisingly, asshole, uh, <laughs> you can always just say, okay, it will be done on the day that you want it. You know, because in the in the classic project management triangle, if you want it on fixed on that day, and that's when the delivery is, that's fine. You can have that. So I either need more people, which then takes you down the mythical man month route, but you know, or we'll just change scope. So I guess the problem here is the situation where it's it's the fixed date, and it's the fixed scope. But if we're saying that in most of the time that scope is is not understood then you could reconcile the whole thing and just say, right, well, I'm definitely going to deliver on the date because the date's going to happen. Give. Yeah. yeah. And you <laughs> don't know what you want. <laughs> so it's all going to work out just beautifully. <laughs> that's a good approach. I'll it's not, is it? I mean, I know that that's not how it works in, a, <laughs> in reality. Is that dropped off the wing of that fighter plane? <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, I suppose no, 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 the, 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 the clamps weren't part of the scope. No. <laughs> I suppose I suppose the path I'm trying to take it is then you, you sort of it's almost like you can't engage, but not in a rage quit type of scenario. It's almost like because it's an impossible situation, all I can do is agree so that we can get through this part of the conversation, so that yeah. I can get to the bit which is the real stuff, which is to say, well, what are your 
uh, you know, the problems and which is your most important one. And let's attach that first. Um, and I think we've discussed on the, on the podcast before about that, about sort of just trying to get through these kind of project management tasks as a dev manager, you know, in the lightest way possible. And I'm certainly guilty in the past of designing these hideous Excel spreadsheets to try and predict all of this type of stuff. You know, Mark and I often joke about it and how we, you know, if we, if we took all of that sort of um, logic that we put into Excel and turned it into a product, we'd probably have a Jira competitor, you know, that kind of thing. You know, and then much later in my career, I was like, this is all a waste of time. And now I do it on the sort of back of a napkin. And it's, as long as it gets past that stage, you know, and I'm not saying lie. I'm just saying, you know, do as little as possible so that then the bits which I find are valuable, you know, they happen sooner rather than being stuck in this kind of holding pattern about, you know, a, a negotiation on date and time and resource and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think it's key to work out where we come back to the MVP thing, isn't it? Yes, yes. You've got to figure out what is the minimum you can get away with, but that's always a, a movable feast as well, isn't it? But, yes, uh, I mean, I suppose here I'm talking about the minimum to end the conversation. <laughs> yeah, it sounds very contentious, and I don't mean it quite as, a, as aggressively, but, you know, if, if I was in a project and I was just spending all my time talking about resource planning, you know, I, I wouldn't be very happy either. So I would, I would attempt to get out of that as quickly as possible. And, and I guess sometimes the, the solution is to not play the game. I'm not mm. advocating that. I'm just saying that mm. you know, that's something I've done in the past. Yeah. And then go and focus on the things which I do sort of value. The other thing yeah. is that often these deadlines get moved as well. Like you, were, you said earlier that, you know, the deadline slips by a while. And that's always been the case in teams I've worked in is that the deadlines are always movable. So why all the stress at the start of trying to predict that yeah. and get out of the conversation to, you know, pin you down to a date is, it just seems useless in the end because you're going to go over anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, in, in um, I don't know if this is the same in your industry, but there's some sort of things called liquidated damages in contracts as a contract clause that every day you miss the deadline, you, you have to pay a fine effectively. So this is why you know, the program managers get quite um, hot under the collar about things. And that's real. I mean, yeah, I can totally appreciate that. Yeah. I suppose then that sort of then takes us into like, are those contracts reasonable? And, mm. and can you win? You know, if they're the rules of the game, I'm using the same game analogy, on it, but if they're the <laughs> rules and you're trying to interpret them into a, you know, into a way that you can deliver, but, you know, every day over is is a you know ten thousand dollar penalty or whatever i don't mm. know what the numbers are i mean that's that i would feel the pressure of that that would make, yeah that would make me not sleep and that kind of jars against i kind of think that agile can only work especially if you've got um a boundary between companies like if you've subcontracted something out to some to another company who's doing agile if you don't have that trust relationship you, you can't really work can it because you're relying on on basically people to do do as much as they can in the time available rather than it being um all kind of tied up in, in a contract somewhere so um, so were you involved at all in that contractual negotiation I, i'm interested in that and given the statement you made that most of these contracts overrun yeah it, it's quite amazing that you know over the long term they're still um signed you know, you'd, you'd think somebody yeah. in the system would go, hang on a minute, I'm not signing this because the last five times I signed something like this, it didn't work out. <laughs> well, I think uh, that's a good point. I think from this company's point of view and this business unit particularly, they, they've been burned by software projects before um, because their, their kind of um, bread and butter is making like ships and stuff, big mechanical things. Yeah. And they understand that they can do it, they deliver it. And even if those things overrun, they get all of their profits from the maintenance phase. They have like a 20 okay. or 30 year maintenance phase of just clawing in money. Right, um, okay. So I think sometimes that's the kind of like, the aim is just to deliver so that they then, you know, they exactly. get the, right. the okay. maintenance money, yeah. So weird, isn't it? It's quite, a, it's quite a different world. And I think it's going through a bit of, growing pains i think i mean i don't get directly involved with mod and stuff but i think they're all pushing the agile thing but i should imagine these sort of issues are coming up all over the place 
Yeah. I mean, I've, yeah. I've been trying to think back, you know, the question you asked at the beginning, which is, you know, sort of the, the purpose of the conversation, how different is it to what we're, we, as in the bit picking team are individually used to the closest I could get to that sort of long-term project would be um, we worked on an investment project a while ago and that investment was of the order of millions, but it was broken down to such an extent and then it only lasted a year and we had quarterly reviews that at any one time you were only within a short cycle mm. you know with a deliverable that was within the next three to six months there was a bigger vision and the investment was um, based on the vision but on the shop floor if you were you were only ever looking at one um sort of deliverable within that short time period so um if if we were told at the very beginning, right, you've got five years and here's this very lofty goal and we didn't have the opportunity to sort of go through what you're just sort of describing you want, which is, okay, let's, you know, essentially break it down and then run it in an agile fashion. Um, I, th I would, yeah, I think that would have been quite tough. Mm. So, it, so it is wildly different is what I'm saying. If, even when the numbers are the same, the execution yeah, yeah. seems to be massively different. So interested um, to to know when uh, in in that example there where you've got quarterly reviews, do you still have like tight sprints within that, even if you're not engaging with the client as frequently? Um, I mean, in our situation, the sprints were too weekly, but yeah. they they sort of didn't roll up to those quarterly reviews. So the course, the quarterly reviews was at a product management and financial level. Mm. Um, and then the delivery was, um, as in the sort of delivery reviews, was every sprint, which was two weeks in, in that instance. Yeah. You know. So who were you engaging with when you were planning your sprints? Uh, well, we had, we had product managers and product owners at that point. So the yeah. product managers were also would sit on that product board, which would um, hold the vision and the budget, like the overall budget. Right. And then the product managers and product owners would be in close collaboration about what was actually being delivered. Right. Um, and then essentially the product owner and the dev team would deliver to the product manager. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. The but there was a lot of, and we've spoken about this a hundred times, but there was a lot of issues with that model. So it wasn't by any means a, um, entirely successful having product owners and product managers was often quite a conflict. I see. So the, the product owner was like the person with the vision for the product and the product manager was the person who's delivering it. On the oh, so, that, so there you go. We've hit it. That was one of the problems because it was the exact yeah. opposite. It was the other way around. <laughs> yeah. And then it was who was in charge and yeah, yeah. Uh, who, who made the decisions and all that kind of stuff. But um, do those things exist in a, you know, in a, the worlds that you inhabit, you know, the idea of product owners, um, does that, does that yeah. exist? You know, someone with a, with a vision for a product or is it just a, here's, here's the schedule guys, it, it's a project management task, not a product. Yeah, well that's a very pertinent point actually because uh, traditionally no, um, and probably still no at the moment in the sense that they're kind of like, like the whole process of how you book hours and you know, where you're charging your hours to is all based on a project. So there's one project, there's one customer, we'll do it for a project but this piece of software we're working on, there's a vision to reuse it for multiple projects. And therefore, some people realize the need for a product owner or whatever the word would be to understand the vision so that they can kind of coordinate the requirements from the current project, future projects and so on into a common core product um, to progress it. But they just, there's inertia there because they've none, never done it that way before. Um, and I think, yeah, that, that's another challenge, but that, that would be a good, a, a good model, I think in this case, because you need in, in that, in that situation where you're trying to develop a, a common core product, which you can service many projects with your, you need a, a customer and the customer would be that product owner because that's the person with the vision. Um, because you're not going right the way out to the end customer. Um, so I can see that as a model that's working, but it's all about getting the key, the right person in the middle. 
So I was going to say as well, like how much how much of this work ends up being repeatable? You know, we we talk a lot about you know when when you give estimates, it's yeah. based on your experience of having done something similar before. And yeah. We like to claim, I think, generally software developers that this is brand new, unique, and we've never done this before, and therefore we can't possibly know. The reality is we've probably done something similar um, yeah. in, in the past, but I'm wondering whether that, you know, is that true um, for your world as well? Actually, we find it quite hard to estimate, um, to, be, to be precise anyway. I mean, I, I'm quite pessimistic on my estimates because I know that it always takes longer than you think it's going to take. Um, so generally we over deliver, um, which is good, but it, it can be bad as well. If you over deliver by too much, if you, if you, if you're coming into kind of a third or a half even of your estimate, yeah. it means your ability to plan a sprint goes out the window, right? Because, um, you get halfway through the sprint and you've run out of, you've run out of tasks. And yeah. then, you know, that leads me into my other question is what, what do you do in that situation? Um, so, I mean, just a bit of background. We decided to run our sprints a month long because the engagement with the team above, the systems team, that's kind of what they could service. They, they, they didn't want to take a, a build uh, any more frequently than that, or even that frequently. So there was no point in doing it a more rapid turnaround. So that was kind of working for us. Um, but well, where was I going with that? You talk about filling up, filling up sprints. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So yes, they were, they were quite long, which means we there's a lot of scope for like kind of finishing with quite a big, big gap at the end. Um, so. Yeah, I was interested to know in the in the purest agile kind of methodology, how do you deal with that situation in your situations, in your examples? Well, this is this is without without wishing to immediately go off the subject, but I, but I feel like it's sort of related. Um, so so maybe I'll ask the question and we'll we'll, we'll come back to it because um, what I was going to ask was about sort of adoption um, of things like test driven development, um, you know, and those kind of practices. The reason that that springs into my my head was um, number one when you were talking earlier about kind of adopting these practices to kind of be more sure about being able to hit a date. Right, I know that this works when I deliver it, um, but also just thinking about to come back to your question, uh, you know, one of the things um, traditionally that we've seen teams do is using the extra time to actually do their own housekeeping. So whether that be um, you know, uh, writing scripts to automate certain tasks, or whether that be um, writing more tests, or whether that be um, you know maintaining build servers or whatever, whatever. Um, you know, those tend to be the things that teams have, have said, okay, we've got a bit of breathing room now. Yeah. Take the time to clean up these these. Um, yeah, that's you've ignored for now. Yeah, that's that's a good. We have like. Um, we, we kind of call those a non-functional task, basically. If there's tasks where you've realized, oh, there's an architecture improvement that can be done here, which will improve maintainability going forward, or there's a gap in the integration tests over here, so we really could do it right in those. Um, we, yeah, we create um, tickets for those user stories or whatever terminology you want to use, stick them on the backlog. Um, so, I mean, that's a good idea that in those, those kind of like, if you do end up with a bit of bonus time, you can just kind of throw in a few non-functionals. Yeah. Yeah. Greg's, Greg's line was always, if you finish early, you can go home. Yeah. yeah. But that seems a bit more, that's a bit more Silicon Valley than Chew Valley. Right? <laughs> well, my, my thing was, <laughs> I mean, this local is, joke there. <laughs> yeah, it's good. <laughs> My thing was, and I don't, I don't know. It's funny you say what's the agile purist, and I, I wonder if it differs between Scrum and XP and blah blah blah. But the thing that we had was um, uh, commitment, and I was always quite conscious of that word commitment, meaning the dev team. Would men, men usually are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but meaning the the team had committed to deliver that thing. So if they had delivered that thing, then I was like, well, you've met. You, you sort of met the contract of that iteration. You know, yeah. I've got what you told me you were going to deliver if I was the product um, person at that point. 
so it would it felt like it would be a bit unfair for me to like weigh in with a whole bunch of other stuff yeah i guess the problem with that is the the people who you're delivering to who might not in in our case be software savvy have to trust that you're not just over inflating your estimates well because that would be very easy to do yes but if there isn't the trust then i think there's bigger issues yeah i think they're right not to trust us I, I mean, was going to say, the, does um, this come down to that? The team structure in a way, or like the, the management structure, is that the issue? Not agile, is it that they don't understand or, you know, they're not willing to understand maybe how it works and that there's a better way to do something? I couldn't possibly comment on whether, <laughs> <laughs> whether the problem is that the management don't understand. Um, <laughs> But going back, if then you're following a velocity model for your iterations, and I'm pretty sure this has all fallen out of favour, but you know, just to finish it off, if you finish your commitment early and you were worried about um, overinflating of estimates, well, in the next iteration during that planning, you'd be able to recognise that. And you'd say, right, well, last week you said you were going to do 20 and you finished mm-hmm. it all with like days to spare. So this week... You know, let's try for 24 and see what happens. And there's like ways yeah. to calculate that stuff. And eventually, if you run that over three, four, five, yeah. six iterations, you'd start getting a feel for what the actual deliverable output of the team was so that you didn't get into that sort of situation. So in a ways, I was sort of tricking the team by saying, if you finish early, you can go home. Because I sort of knew, right, well, then I'm, I'm going to get a barometer on, you know, how much we can deliver, right? Does that does that mean I guess you're implying here that the tasks are so kind of similar that you can kind of put story points on them or whatever, and you know they're kind of all homogenous in a way. So it's just like making widgets, and you can kind of scale one sprint based on the number of widgets you made in the last sprint. But in my experience, yeah. each task is so different that it, I can't. But I if you, like I mean, you, 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 you wouldn't be able to make a commitment otherwise, would you? You know, if, if, you, if you say, well, how much can you deliver in this sprint? Yeah. You know, it wasn't some way of saying that task A, how, you know, that compared to task B, is it bigger or smaller? Hmm. You know, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't be able to guess. So no wonder you're finishing early or not finishing at all. I don't mean you personally, hmm. but yeah, without, no, without that kind of process which I, I know that's the sort of estimates conversation, but without that, you wouldn't be able mm. to to even get a commitment because nobody would know. Yeah. Right? So there has to be some element that if I say a thing is a one and this other yeah. thing is a two, you know, whether it's time-based or effort-based, they are, they are relatable to each other in that mm. sense. Isn't this the, the crux of the issue that software development's always new? It, it doesn't matter if you've done the task before, especially in your defense um, industry you know you could be working with different people different end users different contexts different technology stacks that even if you've done the task before and some of the variables are the same so to speak that yeah it's going to be different every single time and you know you you said sometimes you know building a ship is you know that's going to be the same every time isn't it the Mm. way a ship design changes over time is probably very slow compared to software development Mm. Um, so a software development moves very quickly yeah. even if you've done the task before um, it's going to make it very hard to estimate that even yeah if you've done I, it no I agree I think the only things that I'm, I can think of that are kind of almost cookie cutters where you've got a bunch of screens and they're all quite similar and yeah. you can kind of you can gauge it by number of buttons number of fields you know how, how complex the logic is I mean, the I know I, tasks seem all, yeah. all a bit more bearable. Yeah. I, I mean, I know what you're saying, Laura, but you're wrong. <laughs> but I think, and I've oh, gone through me. the. No, I've <laughs> gone through this personally. Like, you know, do I like estimates or not? But I do think that at some level, you you should be able to say whether something is hard or not hard, or or, or hard and harder and that kind of thing. And that's why things like t-shirt sizing. Uh, Fibonacci estimates that kind of stuff is to try and deal with because you're you're not wrong in the sense that what you're saying is true but it's also I've learned you can't then not estimate based on that Mm. you know there's always an estimate yeah no I'm actually something you know yeah I'm I'm quite comfortable with estimating and actually Fibonacci 
quite good in terms of like if your numbers mean hours i'm not that's kind of the way i've done it before and i think what you end up with if you've got quite a large system and you've got a whole bunch of different tasks and just quickly go through it do fibonacci maybe with a bunch of you with like poker cards stuff like that the number you end up with with the total although not exact it won't be an order of magnitude out. It might be double, it might be half, but it won't be an order of magnitude out. But then exactly. each task yeah. in that could vary quite a lot. And I think that's where the trouble. Um, but, that doesn't, but that doesn't matter, does it? If the commitment is done. If you've, you're trying to then put a bunch of those into a sprint and then gauge the next sprint on how well that sprint went, I think you start to kind of like hit the, the variability at the small level, even if the overall thing is going to be... Um, roughly this roughly the same yeah, i mean maybe you can mathematically prove that but <laughs> you can <laughs> I think, you can because <laughs> i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna want to go on a tangent now so <laughs> i'm gonna bring go <laughs> i'm gonna bring in a knitting analogy so <laughs> 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 this is really nerdy um, if i'm gonna knit a jumper and i have to have five stitches per inch and i think well i've measured that and it's like half a stitch out and then I knit a whole jumper. I end up with a jumper like absolutely huge because the mag, you know, over time, it's order an order of magnitude yeah. much bigger than it should be, yeah. and it does it, it compacts itself over and over each time you do it wrong. So, but the but the go. point of tangent. But, the, <laughs> but isn't the point of the sprint that you reset that estimate every time? You know, the the point of estimating in 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 my world, and maybe I'm drifting into the extreme agile sense but you do the estimates you use that to determine what your commitment is and then you throw those estimates away and then the task for the team is just complete that stuff and we've gone mm. through a process to make sure that that's not like you say it's not twice as much but it's not half as much either it's somewhere about right then you do that whole thing again so yeah no i guess that's what i agree with that i mean you but what i think is exactly that you reset so when you're talking about the next sprint you you try and kind of level your, your sprint based on your resources and based on the task and knowing how long, give an estimate of how long the task might take for that individual in this circumstance, rather than trying to kind of like use several sprints worth of data to, to scale it. I think that's where, where I would struggle. The fact is you're not doing the same tasks though, right? Yeah. Exactly. You do different tasks every sprint, surely. Now. So now I'm not yeah. going to five stitches, now I've got to crochet them. I've got a yeah, yeah. Some other knitting <laughs> words. Uh, oh come on, Mark! You know all the all the jargon. Yeah. <laughs> macrame, macrame is the other one. I know. Um, so, so you kind of like for me that all goes a bit out the window. This is why you know I, uh, I, I really err on the side of no estimates. I'd much rather just not estimate anything. I, I realise that you have to at some point, um, but I don't like it because I kind of think it's a bit a bit worthless. Yeah, I think doing it at the point you need to do it is kind of the where I fall on that. So, you know, sprint planning, which what's the highest priority tasks, work out how long you think they're going to take until you've filled up the sprint, and there you go. Um, do the same next time. So one, one of the other things, that, uh, this, is, this is triggered again. I'm, I'm going to come back to my question that I, that I didn't ask earlier, um, <laughs> which was about, about tech adoption. I mean, you said right at the start that actually... Um, you know, in some of these industries, they're not actually particularly tech savvy, like they're not cutting edge in terms of technology. Um, you know, I suspect there's still companies that um, you'll find that, you know, aren't using things like source control and things that you probably take for granted. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm interested about, um, you know, is how far behind are some of these, some of these companies? Do you see that improving? And thinking particularly, uh, I'll tell you the reason it popped in my head yet again, just to finish off the last point, which was um, part of the problem with estimating is uh, the world tends to be changing underneath me. So I have implemented many times authentication in web applications. But the first time around, it was in a, uh, you know, an, an IBM WebSphere right, server, you know, with server-side sessions. And the next time I did it was with some, um, you know, small kind of, uh, light web framework that used cookies and the third time I did it was in a separated single page application you know in a back end so whilst I'm doing the same things over and over again every time the world has moved on a bit and now I'm having to rediscover how to do 
what I learned to do 10 years ago in a completely different, different way. Um, and I think that's a bit of a, uh, a, a problem with software development. I think I've complained probably on this podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> Never complain. I need to, <laughs> we need to stop change. We need to stay exactly where we are. <laughs> About those COBOL developers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what, I, I just wonder, like, you know, do, do you see adoption um, accelerating? You know, do, do you get to work with um, newer technologies or is it kind of stuck a bit back in the old days? Yeah, no, there's two, there's, I think there's two aspects to that. I mean, I, I would say, I've always said that I think the UK is about 10 years behind Silicon Valley and then the defence industry is about 10 years behind the rest of the UK. So it, it is kind of behind. Um, but in particular, because we kind of they've hired in some software experts um, and contractors to to do the software, we can make choices about the technology. But where the, where they really lag is the infrastructure for the environment and the process. So I spent the first year or two years with their IT department trying to explain to them what I would need on a laptop. <laughs> on their network to actually be capable of developing software and it never succeeded and in the end we just had to go to Curry's and buy some laptops <laughs> so we have two we, the developers the small team of developers all have two laptops one on the, the network in-house for our emails and then one that we develop on because they couldn't give us local admin rights they couldn't set up a git rep repository or you know anything like that um it was the only way. So that that that's the sort of thing where they really lag behind the concept of actually coming up with an environment because they've they've got to keep their environment secure. So whether they use virtual hosting or whatever, that was just way outside their their league. But fortunately for the product, we can especially now we're on our own laptops, we can just pick the technology that we need. Right. Um, but you you raise an interesting point there, something that I kind of kind of concerned with, although hopefully it won't be my problem because I'll be long gone, is the long-term maintenance of products that go in the field because I mean last summer um, we had to take several months out because the product had been around a while to refresh every version of everything so go up to Java later version of Java and all of it all the dependencies all the main dependencies and, um, and one of the big ones was so originally they were using the Ember framework for the, the user interface. And in the meantime, that had leapt up to a new version and there was a kind of breaking change. So the upgrading from the old version of Ember to the new version of Ember was such a big, big change. We thought <laughs> we may as well just go to a proper framework because <laughs> Ember had kind of died by then. And we had to, so we basically had to rewrite the entire UI in a new framework, which is UJS, what we've chosen. And so I just wondered how you feel that you should handle that kind of ongoing maintenance of software because it just gets stale so quick, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do genuinely think the, the pace of technology change is a, uh, uh, you know, I joke about wanting to stand still, but at the same time, you do find every new project you come to yeah. will end up implementing a different technology. Um, yeah. Because it's moving so quickly, and I don't know whether that will ever change over time, or whether people will keep. I think particularly because some stuff is just reinventing a a wheel, um, yeah. As well, they just can't help themselves, can they? Bringing out new frameworks or new languages. You know what this is? This is Silicon Valley developers who have finished their sprint early. Yeah. So <laughs> just right, build a new new web. It's quite a new one. <laughs> so I think you know I, I do think it's a problem. You know. But I also think, um, I think a lot of development teams don't help themselves by doing it incrementally, you know, and, and it, it is something I think uh, as a development manager, I think you have to pay attention to and allow time for to happen, um, you know, along with everything else. You, you know, usually, if you can keep um, up to date with minor versions of things, you know, it will be a lot less painful than waiting four years and then yeah. a jump from version four to version eight or whatever it might be um so I, I, it's definitely difficult though isn't it because you get there's the sort of the, what i'm thinking here is on personal recent experience I'm, I'm trying to work with a new framework and i'm hitting bugs and things with it 
that I'm having to work around and they will be fixed in the future. But by the mm. time they're fixed, as in, in inside the framework, I'll probably be moved on to other stuff. Yeah. So now I've suddenly got all these workarounds in my code, you know, that, um, that shouldn't really be there, but they're working around it. So there's definitely a sweet spot. You know, I mean, unfortunately, it's, it's not a production project. So I can do that and I can um, do the risk. But if I was a um, trying to decide on this is Swift UI, by the way, if I was trying to use this in production, the, what I know now after using it for two months, I probably wouldn't because there's so many holes in it that, you know, but you get sort of, um, you get blown away by the, by the cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, and I think this is the risk. So you think, oh, here's this new technology. Wow, look at that. It's doing this really cool thing. And so you think, all right, let's give it a try. Find out all of these issues with it. But by that point, it's too late. You know, so I, I, I mean, I, I don't think this is what Mark is saying necessarily, but there's definitely some merit in taking something that's been around and been established and sticking with it, you know, in mm. the, maybe it's like Rails, you know, Rails has been around for a long time and, um, uh, that may be a good choice because even though it's not popular, you know, it's got a big backing and that kind of stuff. I'm not saying I'm, I'm not advocating rails. I'm just, that popped into my head when I was thinking about, um, thinking about that. I think that the backend side of things is not so bad. I mean, you know, if you choose Java as a starting point, then that's, that seems to have stood the test of time. Um, despite fair, you know, quite a lot of challenges of Scala and, and, um, and, uh, what was the other one I was thinking of? Things like, I don't know, quit in and go, and I don't know what all these things do. Um, yeah, yeah. But the, from the, I think the front end point of view, the frameworks, is still a battleground. Yeah. You know, obviously there's Angular and um, Vue and React, they're the key ones. But a few years back, it was, there was Ember as well. And I think there's been a few others. And I don't think that's settled down yet. So that, that's... Uh, you're right. It is a bit of a playground, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I've been I out of that world for a long time. And just yesterday, and you'll probably all laugh at me, I just learned about Viper as an alternative to MVC. No, <laughs> we're <Okay>. not laughing. Because <laughs> no, I was like, I was, like <laughs> I was reading it and it was like in this article as if like, well, this is the thing everyone's doing, right? They're building their apps in the Viper model. Like, how I'm just going to start <laughs> And and the new thing is Elm. That's what I also read last night. Yeah, it just, yeah, just yeah. happens you spoke about this today that I read it last night. But you know, it is constantly evolving. And um, this is primarily why I listen to your podcast is because I'm so focused on the small clutch of technologies that I'm working day to day with. Right. Um, I, I rely on you guys to, to mention some things. And as soon as, as soon as I finish listening, I go away and Google them. Okay. <laughs> and then put them on my CV. If anyone's looking to rest of you, they're cutting edge thought leaders. That's our new new format. Mention some things. Mention some things. Yeah. Mention some things. New slot. <laughs> well, you, I want to ask you one one, one more thing, because um, when actually when I, when I talked about um, technology adoption, uh, you know, obviously there's web frameworks and, and those kind of things, but I'm also interested about um, uh, test room development, and particularly going back to the start and talking about. We want to make, you know, sure we have to make sure this thing works by a particular date. Um, you know, for me, that would be the uh, the grounds where you say, right, well, actually, I'm going to make sure that my code is tested, and uh, you know, I might even do something like pair programming and, and you know, all these other practices that I like to tell people they should be doing. So, do you see adoption of those things, or is it still very much a let's have a, an army of QAs? Yeah, no, it's very, it's very, once again, it's very much us teaching them what it means because they're very much, let's, you know, accept delivery over the wall. Let's get some people to sit down and write some scripts in Word. When I say scripts, I mean, you know, scripts that a human would read and run through. Um, whereas we're very focused on doing automated testing at every level. Um, so unit and integration and then kind of like the next level, kind of system level as well. Um, and using things like Cypress at the front end and just having a suite of um, tests so that you don't have to spend that manual time doing any kind of sanity checks. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of, from, from my point of view, maybe I'm not smart enough. If I'm writing a bit of code from scratch, 
I can't write the test first because I just don't know the structure of what I'm writing. But as soon as this first thing's in place, if um, um, that's when you kind of like, you build your contract by writing the test to keep it solid so you can project against regression. And if you come back in the future and need to add a new feature, um, you can write the test first or more often. Actually, if there's a, if there's a bug comes along, write the, it means your test hasn't caught that bug, write the test to catch the bug and then fix the bug. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, in answer to your question, the companies that we work for are very much guided by us to tell them that they need it, um, which is actually that kind of, they came foul of that before when they were subbing it out to subcontractor, they didn't know to ask. Right. Let me see the coverage of your integration test. Let me see them all running at the same time so that there's no kind of item potency issues and so on, and see them all passing and then see what the coverage is. They didn't know to ask that. They just sent in some of their guys to sit down in front of the computer and just run through a single thread of tests, you know, not multiple users. So there's no loading and no kind of like synchronous issues. Um, just run through a written test, tick, 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 tick. Yeah, that's accepted. And of course, they didn't realize they had uh, a whole heap of architectural issues and scaling issues and, so, um, yeah, that is something that they're learning. It still seems strange to me that anyone would not want that. I mean, and, and you know, and, and the, the, the fight happens everywhere, right? And, you know, and even in, yeah. in the work that I do um, now, you know, TDD is, is definitely not a default. Um, and mm. I, say, I mean, I say TDD, just, just writing tests, right? It doesn't even have to be tested. Yeah. Is, is definitely not a default in, in probably I would guess most places. That's interesting. I, I wonder if that's kind of come out of that Silicon Valley kind of just not, just bang it out the code and the, the customers will tell us what doesn't work. <laughs> I, I think I mean I think yeah all those pressures like you were describing on you got to get this done it needs to be done by this date. So things have to drop eventually. And, and I've seen all too often that testing is one of the first, it's, I mean, not, not user testing as in after it's thrown over the fence, but TDD, yeah. like Mark's describing it. Yeah, I agree. And, I, and I've been there because it's fun writing code to, to does something and you can see it do something. And then knowing that you have to write all of the unit tests to kind of like pin it in that, in that position make sure it doesn't regress in the future just you don't feel like you're going to get the, the brownie points right because you could have yeah, just knocked it out in, in three hours this task and now you want me to spend another day writing the test where i could get the brownie points and say i'm done you know um yeah it's a, it's a real it's a real discipline yeah you know in the sense and it's not creative either yeah, yeah. Deve development work is creative but writing the test is probably more functional as well isn't it so it's not the fun but, bit i mean yeah I, I sort of disagree with well, I, I don't. I don't disagree with that. <laughs> I do. I don't. I don't know. But when, for me, when I'm, this is why I always emphasise test-driven development versus writing tests, because at writing tests after the event is dull as dishwater, right? It really is. And like you know, like I said, one of the things I've been doing recently is working with some other people on some stuff, and then I've come to change their code, and then I've had to write the tests for their code because they've not done it. Yeah, and that is really dull. And, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've now got to the point where I'm complaining about doing that. However, for me, when I'm writing code, by writing the test as I'm writing the code, it's part of that creative um, yeah. uh, work, which is I'm using the test to decide what this thing needs to look like and to shape the way. That, so I, for me, I, I really like writing the test because they help me sort of see the shape of what I'm I think I write and spot like, what should I add? What should I take away? What should this be called? Yeah, no, I think you can. Once you get into the mindset of knowing kind of like why they're so useful, it can be quite, it can be quite a fun process because, well, I mean, you get a green bar when they pass for starters, right? <laughs> you don't get a green bar when you write the, the you know, the functional code <laughs> and everyone likes a green bar. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think once you say, oh yeah, I understand why this is good, it can become quite satisfying. And the other thing, um, which I think is often missed is the tests are the documentation for the code because mm. they're kind of saying this is this is what I meant the code to do 
especially if you've got like an integration level test rather than unit level test where you might be kind of like sending out um, rest requests, you know, and, and checking the responses. If you've got kind of like a use case of what you expect to happen, and it's really good for future developers to understand what, what your intent was. Yeah. Also, if I can, if I can write tests rather than having to write actual documentation, I'll take that any day. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And that's another battle that we face as well. I don't know about you guys, but you know, I used to do a lot of documentation in terms of UML diagrams and so on. Whereas now I kind of think it's not worth it. The, the code should be clear and the test should be documenting the code. Nobody's going to go off and look at a UML model these days. No, I do. Right. I, I, well, certainly, certainly I don't and I, and I, and I haven't. Um, but I suspect there's some people somewhere that love that stuff, don't they? <laughs> There's some there's bloody there's project managers. Some, I wonder if they still teach it. Yeah. Do people still yeah, learn that's, that? That's now? a good point. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. Willing, I'm willing to bet if you do a university computer degree, you'll be taught UML. You probably do, yeah. You probably do. And I, I still think it has a place. And you, but usually that place is a whiteboard. Like if, yeah. if, if you're yeah. having a chat around a, a problem and you can draw the right that rectangles the right lines with the right symbols at the end of the lines and everyone knows what you mean by that that's great but then actually trying to you know formalize that in a hundred page document that's the bit where i don't think it's ever going to be any use well the dream was of course that you could draw the diagram and then you'd hit the button yes. and generate the code for you yes <laughs> it's bash bosh release but our software engineers quashed that as an idea because that would put us out of a job <laughs> <laughs> yeah rightly so as well Well, Mark, Laura, that was interesting conversation. Thank you to Paul again for um, telling us his story. Um, sounds like quite a tricky situation he faces himself in quite regularly. What did you think? I'm going to bring up again, Greg, what I think was maybe one of your pithiest bits of wisdom, which is uh, agile and multiple is really all the same. It's just about when you defer the disappointment until. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Everyone is, everyone is well, I can either disappoint you now or I can disappoint <laughs> you later. Yeah. Everyone is permanently kicking a can down the road by, um, uh, by giving numbers that they know are not going to happen. Um, yeah. Everyone's so, just pretending they're not going to be disappointed, but they all know it. They are going to be. <laughs> I, think, I think this is just, this is just a problem of the human condition, uh, not necessarily particular industries. Yeah. But, but I suppose in a way it shows a maturity in the industry that there are now these differences, you know, that each of our personal experiences is, is different from each other. Yeah. Um, and that probably just shows how established software development is as a profession, you know, and you can be successful in a variety of different ways or unsuccessful. Um, and some may be good to some and bad to others and vice versa. So you know, if I want to take the positive out of it in this, you know, current uh, climate, then it's that software development has landed. <laughs> <laughs> it's the big new thing for 2020. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So I'm, it was, still, I'm still reeling from the green bar thing. Yeah. Uh, what is that? <laughs> he gets a green bar. Green bar? No, we'll show you one day, Lord. Yeah. Oh, amazing. You're <laughs> Your induction into the pit picking. <laughs> Here's a green bar. Oh man, do you know what? I'd love to go to a bar now, wouldn't you? Oh, bar. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't missed bars, if I'm honest. Really? Okay. Yeah, I've missed restaurants, but the weird thing that I never thought I would miss, um, because I've always sort of been not, you know, sort of not anti this, but I've never. Oh, I'm not bothered by that. But is holidays, and in particular beach holidays. And even though I didn't have one due in the period that we've all been, um, you know, locked down, for some reason, every day I think, God, I can't believe I'm not on holiday. <laughs> you one of those down at Bournemouth Pier on Sunday? No, no, that did look pretty crazy, didn't it? <laughs> no. We anyway. went to Tynum and that was lovely. It was really hot there. Oh, very nice. Very but nice. very quiet. There was no one there. We're deviating rapidly. <laughs> deviating. <laughs> Tan <laughs> another tangent. Let's wrap up this episode. Bye, Laura. <laughs> Bye, Mark. I mean, oh, Greg. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm left out today. <laughs> Bye, Greg. Did it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Bye, Greg. Bye. <laughs>